DiscerningHearts.com presents Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. Dr. Lillis is an associate professor and the academic dean of St. John's Seminary in Camarillo, California, as well as the academic advisor for the St. Juan Diego House of Priestly Formation for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Through the years, clergy, seminarians, religious, and lay faithful have benefited from his lectures and retreat conferences on the Carmelite Doctors of the Church and the writings of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. He is the author of Hidden Mountain's Secret Garden, a theological contemplation of prayer, as well as numerous other books focused on the spiritual life. In this series of Conversations with Dr. Lillis, we focus on Doctor of the Church, St. Teresa of Avila, and her great spiritual masterwork, The Interior Castle. Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome, Anthony. Chris, it's wonderful to be with you. Thanks for having me. I am very excited about talking in this episode about the fifth mansion of the interior castle by St. Teresa of Avila. What I've heard over the years, and God bless everybody who, when they encounter it, I've heard more people who think that they're in the fifth mansion. In, in reality, more than likely, we're not there yet. Well, how would you guide us through this mansion? The reason why fewer of us have experienced this mansion than the other ones, everyone's called to this union, to the highest states of union. We're, we're called there by virtue of our baptism. But few are chosen for it because very few of us are willing to give the Lord everything it takes to attain the We're attached to other things in life, and we have other priorities. And God invites us here but we're not willing to exert ourselves to make the detachments in our lives, to practice the prayer and fasting that allows God to bring us into this place. So what I think happens sometimes is that people might have visited these rooms, the fifth mansions, but it's different being a visitor and being somebody who dwells in them more continually when you're a visitor, you get just the slightest taste. And because of the slightest taste that you receive, when you read these passages, you think, oh, yeah, I've, I've been here, done that. <laughs> you know. But really, dwelling in these, it's a different kind of experience of prayer. Those normally who are in this fifth mansion, they don't recognize where they're at until they've been in it for a long, long time. What goes on in this fifth mansion is so unfamiliar to the soul who enters it. They don't quite realize that they're praying and that their prayer is deep and powerful as it is. It's subtle, but it's also different than what they've had before. But they begin to recognize it from some of the joys that's there. They don't understand it themselves. There's something about not understanding this kind of prayer that goes along with John of the Cross's doctrine of the night, that he talks about a dark contemplation and a divine inflow oh, that that happens in this dark contemplation. Uh, and she's describing a similar phenomena, if not the same phenomena, where you don't quite understand what's going on, but God is doing something beautiful and amazing. And that's why spiritual direction, especially for souls who become a little bit more advanced, becomes more and more essential because in a way they understand less and less of what God's doing in their hearts. And it's easy 
when you don't understand what God is doing to try to grasp for control or or do something that will interrupt a soul that begins to read this word and go, aha, I'm finally here. That same soul, precisely because it thinks it understands what's going on in it, is the one that's least likely to be dwelling in these mansions. It's the soul that doesn't quite know what God is doing. Actually, they actually are praying because this is so different. That soul it, that is kind of dumbfounded by what God is doing, that's the soul that's more likely to be imagined. Um, if, if we self-diagnose and we usually make a mistake anyway, the mansions are there really to help guide a spiritual director and help give a spiritual director language to confer on the soul so the soul knows how to behave. But, but they're not really meant for us to kind of go, okay, I've done this many rings on the ladder and I have this many to go and then I'm finally there. That, that would kind of is a corruption of what Teresa wrote. Teresa wrote about the higher mansions because she wants us to aspire for them. She wants us to exert ourselves to try to attain them and to be mindful that no matter where we are, there's something more wonderful waiting for us. And here, in this one, she's going to speak about joy and strength that comes in this kind of prayer. And the joy and strength is something unlike the soul has ever experienced before, unlike any joy that has ever been known in this life. It's a very unique thing that God gives the soul that's here. Anthony, I'm going to ask you maybe an unusual question in that there's another soul that we saw blossom over the years, and, and you helped guide us in her life, Elizabeth of the Trinity, namely. And where was she when she was experiencing something like this, do you think? Oh, it's likely that she may have even begun to experience this kind of prayer while before she even entered Carmel. But it's quite likely that she began to experience this prayer more regularly when she was a novice. There's this painful transition where she thinks she's made the wrong choice and she's ready to leave the convent. She doesn't really understand what God is doing in her soul. And that kind of goes with this, this kind of sleep of the faculties where Teresa of Avila talks about that it's, you're, you're in a sleep. It's not kind of a dream reality or a dream state, but you really, you're in a sleep in the sense that you really don't understand what's going on. And we see some, Elizabeth of the Trinity going through something like that while she's a novice in Carmel. She's, trying to discern whether or not to take her vows. And it's troubled her soul so much that not only the mother prioress, but a special spiritual director needs to be brought in and, and help her through this. A Jesuit comes and helps her. The Dominican Père Valet comes and tries to help her. And he can't even recognize what's going on either. The prioress kind of recognizes this a little bit. And the Jesuit spiritual director also is able to help her through this little phase. But I've heard some, including Conrad de Meester, who's the main commentator on her, say that you know this had to do with kind of last-minute jitters about whether something that she wanted so much her whole life, whether she felt worthy to do it or not. And I'm sure that's part of the phenomena that she experienced. But I also think it was doubled with this experience in prayer, where you lose an understanding for what God's doing. It's so unfamiliar. You wonder whether or not you're actually praying. Uh, and it can be disturbing for a soul. John of the Cross picks this up 
when he talks about the dark night. And so Elizabeth is likely to have tasted this. Furthermore, what my mind gives credence to this is when she goes to talk about her spiritual mission, her spiritual mission is to lead souls, help souls go out of themselves and into great silence where God can imprint himself on them. Well, the great silence, this, this place where we, we're no longer occupied with ourselves. As you read this chapter one, Teresa of Avila is talking about the same kind of thing. She's talking about being completely free of worldly concerns, that a new freedom the, uh, comes with this kind of prayer. The things that occupied you before, that were concerned for you before, that maybe disturbed your peace from time to time, they have no more power over your soul. It's as if you're dead to them. You're utterly asleep to anything uh, except this curious thing that God is doing that you're somehow feeling, but you don't understand. You don't understand it. Elizabeth views her spiritual mission to lead souls out of themselves and into this very similar place. I think that's the journey she went on during the Vishnet. She came into this very silent place that was difficult to be, but is exactly the place where God imprints himself on you. It's the place for even greater kinds of union and delight. So it's in that sense, it's a place of immense joy. And, and Teresa Babla here also talks about this immense joy. You know, it, it struck me as you were talking, even in that it is a paragraph number two in a chapter one in this fifth mansion where she, Teresa of Avila, would say, since some foretaste of heaven may be had on earth, beg our Lord to give us grace not to miss it through our own fault. Ask him to show us where to find it. Ask him to give us strength of soul to dig until we find this hidden treasure, which lies buried within our hearts. She'll go on and continue to talk about needing that strength of the soul. But that's the area where Elizabeth of the Trinity she reminds us right out of the gate in her treats that don't forget he's there in your heart. That's where heaven can be found. I mean, she's such the spiritual daughter of this great holy mother, St. Teresa of Avila. It's true. When, you know, Elizabeth was a teenager, she was reading The Way of Perfection. Her mother actually loved The Way of Perfection and found a lot of consolation in it. Mother kind of maybe struggled a, l a little bit with what we might call Jansenism, that the idea that you needed to try to make yourself worthy by your efforts. And a spiritual director, someone told her to start reading The Way of Perfection, and this helped her mother so much, she asked her daughters to begin to read it. And for Elizabeth of the Trinity, as she began to be able to articulate some of the experiences she had inside it deepened her prayer immensely. Throughout her writings, then, you have these references to Theresian images. And it's quite possible that you're right here in this very first chapter where Teresa of Avila is talking about a foretaste of heaven. This might be uh, one of the passages that influenced Elizabeth of the Trinity to, when she talks about heaven and faith. You know, right now, God wants us to enjoy heaven and faith. And that means faith in the midst of all the trials and hardships that we're suffering. Those trials and hardships don't detract or 
discourage or take away the experience of heaven God gives us. He gives it to us right in the midst of them. And that's as we go forward. If, if there's joy, the joy of heaven, there's also the strength of heaven. Heaven is not unfamiliar with all the sufferings of the world. Heaven bears what's going on in the world and all the hardships and difficulties that that we're facing. Heaven is fully cognizant of all them. But heaven heaven also has the strength to be present to them and to bear them. It doesn't run away from them. It, it bears them. Well, this is what soul in the fifth mansion is being invited into, the joy and the strength of heaven. But to get there, God needs to bring us into a place that we we don't understand and we're not quite familiar with. He's going to flow into us in a brand new way, in a way that completely transforms our life. And Teresa of Avila is saying, don't avoid this sleep, this death to the world. Instead, strive for it with all your might because God wants to do something beautiful in you. Can you help us understand the drowsiness that she speaks of? She says it's not like the prayer of union. She says it's it's a little different. What she says, these mansions, it kind of starts with four and goes all the way through the rest. There's there's a union that's going on, but the union is different in each in each state. In the last union, the uh, kind of union that we had was kind of the beginning of this where you have kind of like a, a little spark of prayer and all of a sudden it's hard for you to attend to almost anything else because the spark is so beautiful. So you lose a little bit of your awareness of things that are going on around you and you find your love for the Lord enkindled. So this goes with the fourth mansions. This little bit of light, it, it's not enough to lighten your way. It doesn't provide very much warmth, but it's begun. Now that little spark in this kind of union is going to become a little bit stronger. The image she uses here in chapter one, though, is, is this image of sleep. And that's what I was trying to describe. In this sleep, you are fast asleep, she says, to the things of the world. Those priorities, those concerns no longer have a claim on your consciousness. We oftentimes live a moment by moment kind of under the tyranny of the immediate exigencies of our life. The, the immediate demands and concerns occupy most of our mental energy. What if God pulled us away from all of that and we weren't aware of it anymore? If we were in a certain way asleep to all of it? Some people would say they a soul in this state because they're not as aware of everything that's going on around them. Some people would say that you know, they seem kind of dreamy and kind of out of it and not very aware of what's going on. And so the immediate thing is kind of a judgment. Well, kind of snap out of it and get with it. There's stuff to be, to be get, gotten done. Well, that's not the voice of the Holy Spirit. That's the voice of something else. It's the voice of the world or the devil, but it's not the voice of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit recognizes that this soul that seems a little out of it right now, that God is doing something in its depths. This is why with Elizabeth of the Trinity, when Pere Valet talks to her about her experience and she seems totally out of it, she's no longer as aware of the things going on around in her life. She's confounded by what God is doing within. She seems to be asleep. 
And Teresa of Avila says, yes, the soul is fast asleep to the things of the world. And it's even, and part of the reason why it's fast asleep is its intellect isn't able to function in the same way that it was before. God is doing something more fundamental in a deeper part of the soul that the intellect doesn't really understand. And so the intellect is so fascinated and dumbfounded by this new thing that's begun to happen. It withdraws its energy from everything on the outside and tries to concentrate on this thing that it doesn't understand and it finds itself completely in the dark. When you're here, then you feel like you're not aware of what's going on on the outside, that you don't understand uh, outside on your life because you're not really able to concentrate on it. You don't understand what's going on in the inside. And there's a way in which you feel a certain kind of spiritual sleep has grasped you. But maybe a better word for this kind of sleep is there's a kind of death that you have undergone. You have died to an old way of thinking. You've died to an old way of understanding the spiritual life. The spiritual life up till now made so much sense to you. But now the Lord is leading you into a place that you do not understand, that is not comfortable to be and is not familiar to you in any way. And so your intellect, uh, the, these powers of your soul, uh, they seem to be not working the way they did before. They're undergoing a kind of, of death. We don't believe that death is the last word. We believe that the resurrection is. But in order to transform our way of thinking so that we, we judge with the judgments of God about the things of our life, in order to enter into his plan more fully with greater freedom, we need to kind of suffer this death of our intellect until all our old ways of living and all our old attachments are no more. This kind of prayer frees us precisely because it causes us to pass through this death. It frees us like no other kind of prayer can. And that's why it's so necessary for the spiritual life and one of the reasons why we should, we should yearn for it. The joy is the joy of being able to possess God more fully even though we don't understand him or understand how we're possessing him. God himself is the one who brings us into this deep sleep prayer so that he can give us new life. We'll return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis in just a moment. This is Dr. Anthony Lillis and Chris McGregor, and we invite you to join us in a -a once-in-a-lifetime Discerning Hearts Trinitarian pilgrimage throughout the Holy Land. This will be a unique opportunity for contemplative prayer, spiritual teaching, and fellowship in one of the holiest areas on the earth, the places touched by the lives of Jesus, Mary, and the Apostles. During this time, we will also walk closely in the company of the prophet Elijah through the most miraculous moments in salvation history, which would later become pages in the Gospel. Along with Sister Magdalite Balduc of the Community of the Beatitudes, the community of the famous Father Jacques Philippe, We hope to lead you into a new encounter with the great mysteries of our faith and a renewal of your devotion to the Lord. Join us May 23rd through June 2nd, 2020. Please visit discerninghearts.com for a full itinerary and learn more about the Discerning Hearts Trinitarian Pilgrimage to the Holy Land. A Prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola 
Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis. She would go on to talk about that this particular type of experience may only last a a short time. It's not necessarily, at least at this point, something that is a a prolonged experience. Yes, it's confounding. So even though it happens for a short time, it's something that you kind of remember and that it raises a lot of questions. But it doesn't have to last a long time, this new experience of God, to have the effects that it needs to have. The mind would like to occupy itself wholly in understanding something of what it feels, and as it has not the strength to do it, it becomes so dumbfounded that even if any consciousness remains in it, and neither hands nor feet can move, as we commonly say of a person who's fallen into a swoon, it might be taken for dead. Oh, the secrets of God! I should never weary of trying to describe them for you, for if I thought I could do so successfully, I do not mind if I write any amount of nonsense, provided that just once in a way I can write sense, so that we may give great praise to the Lord. This experience that may not last very long stays with you for a long time because you've been touched in a way that you've never been touched before, and you've swooned before the Lord. You've entered into a kind of death, and when you come out of this prayer, the effects don't go away very quickly. They're with you. She talks rather in depth about, as you said, the maybe the confusion that comes up in the soul, trying to understand it, and it it really, it does beg for discernment because she said, you know, the soul wonders, is this, was this real or was this maybe of the devil? Yeah. So that's also one of the ways that you kind of know somebody is experienced this. Is it so unfamiliar to them? They're not sure what it is, what's just happened. And this is where a really good conversation with a spiritual director, a good spiritual director will be able to look for fruit 
If they see joy, they see a deeper strength and re resolve and determination, then these are fruit that the devil can't produce. At the same time, if they don't see these kinds of fruit, if, if the fruits are, are hidden, well, then there might be something else going on with the soul. But the soul may have doubts about itself. A good spiritual director, a wise and discerning spiritual director, uh, he'll be able to speak words of truth to the soul and remind the soul of, uh, of what it is that God's doing. It's not a surprise that Satan, who is an angel of light, should try to deceive us in our life of prayer. But if the Lord has called you into this mansion, if he's called you into this kind of spiritual sleep, then the evil one really can't manufacture this or produce it. The evil one can't confound you in the way that God confounds you. The evil one can't give you the joy that God gives you. He can't give you the satisfaction that God gives you. He can't give you the strength that God gives you. The thing about the evil one, when he works with a soul that is deeply in love with the Lord, his movements cause the soul not only to be discouraged, but to feel weakened and desolate afterwards. He really can't produce, even if it in the moments of prayer, it might feel consoling. Afterwards, you just feel like kind of exhausted and beat up. When God works, at the time it might be dumbfounding and at the time puzzling. And even afterwards, you might have questions, was, you know, was this really God? How can this be? You know, these, those kind of questions can seize your soul. But at the same time, those looking at you and those talking to you will notice a joy. And they'll notice something deep and rich and beautiful. They'll be drawn to it. And this is what a spiritual director looks for. And I would think another major hallmark would be something that you've spoken to us uh, at length about in the past. That spiritual director, those close spiritual friends or guides, whoever you may be journeying with, will be able to see humility in the soul, uh, wouldn't they? I mean, that would be something that would manifest itself. And as you said, sometimes it's, it's the others who see the humility as opposed to the person proclaiming, hey, I'm so humble about this. You know, this is, um, it, 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 that would be a marker, wouldn't it? You know, humility, it's not as thematic in this chapter, but she's kind of laid down that law in the early mansions. All the great virtues that we've already acquired come into play here too. A soul that experiences this prayer, you're right, quite the opposite from feeling uh, puffed up. It It's kind of humbled. And that's one of the reasons why it wonders whether or not it's God, because it doesn't think it's worthy of more sublime outpourings of God's love. And yet it's just experienced something that it can't quite understand. That's about the generosity and the greatness of the Lord. He's there and gives us excessively in ways that we don't understand. You know, this particular uh, degree of prayer, that excessive generosity of the Lord kind of becomes more the dominant characteristic of, of, of what God's done. It's, it's so excessive that our mind kind of just overwhelmed by it. We can't deal with it. And so you're right, going back to your original point, when you've been loved in an extraordinary way, in a way that you don't feel that you deserved, rather than being puffed up, you feel very humbled by it. Like, who am I that the Lord should love me like this? I've met souls who've, after they've encountered the Lord in this way, uh, that's exactly where 
they're at. So this is a good insight that you have. Looking forward to our conversation uh, in our the next chapter, chapter two of the Fifth Mansion, when we're going to counter the butterfly. Yeah, the classic, classic Teresa of Avila a metaphor. I mean, it's just it's it's wonderful. But any final thoughts on this closing chapter one? This is one more thing that I just think it would be. We we can't leave here without looking at this soul which God has made, as it were, completely foolish in order the better to impress upon it true wisdom. For as long as such a soul is in this state, it can neither hear nor understand. The period is always short and seems to the soul even shorter than it really is. God implants himself in the interior of that soul in such a way that when it returns to itself, it cannot possibly doubt that God has been in it, and it has been in God. So firmly does this truth remain within it, although for years God may never grant it that favor again. In this, I talk about the understanding, kind of uh, falling asleep, and the fact that afterwards the soul can be confounded and need the support of a spiritual director or a spiritual friend. At the same time, the foolishness, the wisdom of man is foolishness to God, but the foolishness of God, this his wisdom is something unsurpassable. And if we talk about what God is conferring on the soul, what is giving it joy and strength, we have to add to our conversation one more element. That is his holy wisdom. Wisdom is a taste for holy things. It's a kind of a vision for the whole. It quickens our hearts. It sharpens our judgments. And the soul is endowed with this wonderful thing. At the time it experiences this prayer, it enters into a kind of vulnerable powerlessness before the Lord. And that seems foolish to the world that's always trying to grasp for power. Here you surrender and the most wonderful way to what the Lord wants to do. But in that surrender, he gives you something that can be so fruitful for the rest of our lives. And even a single moment of this prayer is something that is something worth giving everything up for. So that the point is, for those whom God has called to this kind of prayer, if you feel him drawing you, do everything you can to get this. Do everything you can to enter into this. It's something that the Lord gives you, and so you can't force him to give it to you. But if you, if there's something in your life blocking him from giving you what he wants to give you, this divine foolishness, this wisdom that is beyond telling, then get rid of whatever it is that's holding you back. Do never be afraid to be wholehearted for the Lord. Never be afraid to be thought foolish in the eyes of others because you are wholeheartedly devoted to the things of God. God wants to lavish on us gifts, not only for your own upbuilding, but for the upbuilding of the whole church. And this wisdom is that. What we lack today most in the church is wisdom. The contemplative who lives in the heart of the church, the person who devotes himself to silent prayer. That's what I mean by contemplative. 
the person who devotes himself to silent prayer, to entering into the silence, is being given gifts right now that the whole church needs. And that gift in particular is this beautiful, powerful wisdom that's so rare, a wisdom that helps us remember everything that is good, tender, and true about our humanity. It helps us remember the greatness and utter grandeur and splendor of the Lord. Elizabeth of the Trinity's whole mission is to lead us into a silence that allows God to share this kind of wisdom in our hearts, to imprint this wisdom in us. And so you have saints and angels, Teresa of Avila, Elizabeth of the Trinity, John of the Cross are some of the ones we've mentioned in this episode. They want to help get you here, but the church needs you to be open to this wisdom. God is waiting to to shower you with it. But all it requires in our part is removing those things that are blocking him from giving it to us. Anthony, I, I have to ask this question. For someone who is listening to you right now, and they may have suspected that they've experienced this in the past, or maybe they, from what you've said, they desire it so with their heart, and you've told them to go to respond to that desire. What can they concretely do? What can they make that space, make that silence to open that door to him as she asks us to do? How can we do that in this busyness of our lives? Well, the first thing is how we order our lives themselves. Do we make prayer the priority of our heart? Do How much time are we spending in prayer each day? Do we let other things distract us from prayer a little bit too frequently? A prayer without fasting, it's like having one wing. You can't quite fly without fasting. So prayer and fasting need, need to go together. And if somebody has health issues and so can't fast from food on bread and water for whatever reason, there's a lot of things in our culture we can fast from. I was talking to the priests here at the seminary about a media fast, asking the men on Fridays to turn off their cell phones and just not be involved in the entertainment media in any way whatsoever. Now, that's a kind of fasting. We suffocate ourselves in all kinds of entertainment all the time. What if we fasted from, from all the noise of our life? So these are all things that we can do, exterior things. Then in, in our lives also, God is going to send us all kinds of trials. Trials come to those who try to love with all their heart. So if you want to enter into the trials that will lead you to this kind of prayer, love with all your heart. Put your whole self into lifting up your brothers and sisters. Put your whole self into putting them first and putting you sec yourself second. As you pour yourself out for your brothers and sisters, your sons and daughters, your husbands, your wives, as we do this, we give God space to bless us with wonderful trials, the trials of love. We never suffer hardships or trials or difficulties or never make renunciations or have to persevere through anything in our love for one another out of devotion to the Lord. That never happens. It's really not that great of a love, is it? But if we strive for a great love that is willing to face all of those things for the beloved, for the son, the daughter, then God can work in a magnificent way. Those trials dispose us to this kind of prayer. So if we persevere in the discipline of our Christian life, 
if we're willing to fast and renounce things, and then we expose ourselves to the trials that God wants to give us through our faithfulness and love, what we will be constantly confronting is our attachment to things that are holding us back from loving the way we should. And so this is the final thing that kind of disposes us to this kind of prayer. The hard work of dying to ourselves every day to those things that we would rather do has an escape from the cross that we have before us. And that's hard work, dying to myself. But as we practice dying to ourselves, as we uh, renounce our little escapes here and there, conversations we'd rather have than the conversations that we need to have, the work that we'd rather do, renouncing that for the work that we know God needs us to do in the moment. As we do that, this kind of prayer, we're removing all kinds of obstacles from God to give us this kind of prayer. It may take many, many years of renunciation to be able to, and dying to ourselves, to be able to be disposed to this grace of prayer. But when we are disposed to it, when we let God bring us to this place, he does something truly beautiful. Well, welcome to the Fifth Mansion. Okay. I'm looking forward to the butterfly. I am too. All right. Thank you so much, Anthony. You've been listening to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. There, too, you will find an audio version of The Interior Castle by St. Teresa of Avila, the masterwork in which this series has been based. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis.